And we know that there are some people whose brains um, may have different hormones or may not have a, a, a cutoff loop. In other words, once they start getting anxious, they can't stop it. It just continues on and on and on. And so once they start worrying, they can't seem to shut it off. This week, how can couples deal with the anxiety of an uncertain world? Dr. Karen Sherman weighs in. Stay tuned. Okay, here's the deal. I love wine. I know a little bit about wine, but I'm not an expert. But you know who is? Our wine club partner, Touring and Tasting. We have been working together for five years now, and I can honestly say that they have delivered to my door some of the best wines I have ever had. We started working with them so that we could deliver to you an ongoing reminder, a treat to slow down with your spouse and enjoy each other's company and to reconnect. To help facilitate with each shipment, we provide simple date night ideas and touring and tasting shares background information on the wineries and includes recipes that will pair well with your wines. I should note that many of these wines are typically only available if you actually visit the winery or become a member of that wine club. The customer service from Touring and Tasting is ridiculous. I have a friend who joined and then called me to rave about how enjoyable their customer service experience was. That's unheard of, right? So here's the deal. There are no membership fees. Shipping is free. You can cancel at any time. And these unique award-winning wines come with 100% satisfaction guaranteed, which means they guarantee the wine is delicious or they will replace it free upon request. If you decide the wine you just had was amazing and you want to reorder, you can save up to 70% off of retail. Now here's the closer. If you sign up today, you will receive your first shipment for half price. You can join right now and get your first shipment for a flat fee of $49 plus tax. This is before the half price offer. So your pre-taxed first shipment is less than $25 for two amazing bottles of wine. This is a limited time offer, so don't wait. Go to hitchedmag.com and click the Wine Club link to join today. Gift options are also available. Ahem, wedding season around the corner. And again, visit hitchedmag.com and click the Wine Club link to join in celebrating your marriage. Cheers! Hey everybody, welcome back. This is Steve Cooper, Editor-in-Chief of HitchedMag.com. I am joined once again by the lovely, by the original, Dr. Karen Sherman. Hi, Karen. Hi, Steve. Uh, I want to remind those tuning in that you are listening to Dr. Karen Sherman, who is a practicing psychologist in relationships and lifestyle issues for 30 years, Karen is the author of Mindfulness and the Art of Choice, Transform Your Life. Karen is also the co-author of Marriage Magic, Find It, Keep It, and Make It Last. You can get this info at her website, drkarensherman.com. Uh, today, we are going to talk about dealing with uncertainty. Um, it's, it's hard to flip on the news today without feeling this way sometimes with everything that's going on. <laughs> Um, and this is, you know, 
not trying to be political at all, but we have a current president who um, is in the process of basically attempting at least to undo everything the previous president had done. And so when you think of like, say, healthcare, for example, they are attempting to get rid of what people currently have, which creates uncertainty. There are um, things that are going on in the business sector. There are a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff happening. And so, and I say this not as a positive or a negative. Some people I know applaud these changes. Um, but I do think that these things can seep into the home because this can create anxiety. So, um, when going through life, Karen, not everything will unfold as you hope. And many times you do not know what is going to come up next. How can you prevent that anxiety from seeping into your relationship? Well, the first thing I want to say is that in reality, most of the time we don't know what's coming next. You know, you think that you may know what's coming next, but none of us really do know for sure what's coming next. Um, as far as it's seeping into the relationship, um, that's going to depend on two things. Uh, how anxious is one of the people as, you know, um, or both. And the other is, um, how good are you at containing it? Um, and not letting it affect the partnership. And I guess there's a third factor. If you are the partner who doesn't get anxious, how much do you allow it to affect you? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, can it interfere with the relationship? Absolutely. And can it really, uh, you know, create um, discomfort and, um, you know, a lot of stress in the relationship, certainly. But again, it's going to depend on how anxious the person becomes and, uh, you know, what the reaction is of the mate to that anxiety. Mm -hmm. And I, I, is there um, another option where you begin to feed off of each other and each other's anxieties? Oh, sure. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, um, there has actually been research uh, to this and what we find is that misery loves company, uh, which is a cliche, but it turns out to be true. So if you have two people who are anxious, they're absolutely going to feed off each other. And it's just going to probably spiral much more out of control than it would if one person was not as anxious as the other. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and so are there things that you can do to solidify your relationship to help cope better with uh, the emotional... Uh, stuff that may be going on in the outside world? Well, probably, and, and, and I don't think that this is a suggestion that is brilliant or new from me, but probably not read uh, so many of the newspapers, whether it be, you know, hard print or online, not watch as much TV w because we are inundated constantly with this news uh, because the more that you're getting information, the more that it's feeding into your anxiety. So if you don't um, expose yourself to a lot of it, then you're not going to get, you know, as nervous about it. The other is to just try to keep a reality check on it and know that, you know, there, 
most of what goes on in your life is not something that you can control. The only thing you can control is your reaction. And so start to do some things for yourself that will allow you to not get caught up into the frenzy of it, of the anxiety. Okay. And, you know, I, it's interesting because you are basically advising people to disconnect, um, which, which seems like very solid advice. And the thing about that is a lot of people might think, you know, but I want to, I want to stay informed. Mm -hmm. But I think what we're talking about though, is these are things that you have no control over anyway. And if, if the damage of the consumption is more than the, the enlightenment, Mm -hmm. then what purpose is it really serving? Yes. Yes. And um, a lot of times we're really overloaded with the amount of information we're given. So, you know, you're wise to, you know, not become addicted to it and to take it in and take it in and, you know, get overly saturated with it because it's really not going to do anything other than to feed the anxiety and or the depression. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so... Does the type of uncertainty matter? And so um, I'm going to give a couple examples and you let me know if if there these variables will weigh into how you would respond. So, um, you know, for example, one source of uncertainty might be the prospect of getting a new job or losing a job, perhaps, and forcing you to move. Uh, Another uncertainty might be, uh, as I mentioned at the top, the loss of perhaps your health care that you currently are mm-hmm. on. Um, and particularly if you have a very specific need for that health care at the moment, as opposed to like some emergency situation. And then um, a, a last one here is um, the uncertainty of perhaps a child who is sick and maybe even in the hospital or something and, and there's nothing you can do. Well, one one would think logically that, yes, the particulars would make a difference. But what I've seen in my practice, in my own life, you know, with friends, family, people I'm close to, is that it really is not the particular circumstances. It's more the person. So there are going to be some people who are prone to anxiety and they'll worry about the littlest things. And there are some people who have the ability to really manage their anxiety and not get upset and their phrases until I know there's something to be upset about. Um, And so it really is more a factor of who they are as people and how they cope with the world um, as opposed to what the particulars are. Okay. Uh, um, now, with that being said, is there a way you just mentioned that it's it's how people cope with it? Is there a way to actually embrace this uncertainty? Like, is there any benefit to doing something along those lines? Well, sure there is, because if you are the kind of person who can actually manage it and say to yourself, look, you know, I, I actually know somebody who says, I don't worry. You know, let's say that. um I found a lump in my breast. There is no purpose in worrying about it until I have an actual diagnosis that it should be of concern. Now, the benefit of doing that is not wasting hours and hours of upset and anxiety, which sets off all kinds of stress hormones, and that works against your body. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's 
really, until you know for a fact that there's something of concern, no reason to be concerned. Now, I have no doubt that all of our listeners are you know, able to understand that logically. But what happens is that logic sort of goes out the window for most of us because we do, when there's something that is potentially anxiety provoking, we go there right away mm-hmm. and don't have the ability to control it you know, with that kind of reasonable thinking. But is there a benefit? Of course there's a benefit because most of the time, it turns out that it's not anything to really worry about. So, I mean, what you were describing is more of uh, just a lack of action. And I was, I guess what I was trying to get at was if to, to, to piggyback off your example of finding a, a lump in the breast, um, you know, there's the, the first step of not worrying about it because there's nothing you can do until you get the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, but would there be a, a benefit to... If this is breast cancer, mm-hmm. what do I want to do? Um, you know, have I, you know, am I living a full life at this moment? If I find that I have, you know, I have to go through treatment, what do I want to do before I go through treatment? Is there a way that you are able to spin it so you start thinking, oh, you know what? I feel like maybe I've been complacent. Like it has absolutely nothing to do with the breast cancer, right? But mm-hmm. it forces you, you're putting this, put into this situation where it forces you to reflect on who you are, where you are, what you're doing mm-hmm. that you might not have uh, done otherwise. And obviously mm-hmm. you hope for the best with the diagnosis, but it kind of, that uncertainty sparks um, progress. Well, yes, because what you're really talking about is an existential kind of thinking. And what the existentialists would say is one thing we all know is that we're going to die. And if we would accept that, it would allow us or force us to live more meaningful lives because we would be more present. We would be more aware. So until you truly accept that we're all going to die, um, and, and not just sort of, you know, like sort of put it in the back of our minds, then we're not going to make the most out of each day. So I think that if you embraced uncertainty, you would be free to truly live a much more full existence and not be bothered or upset or uncomfortable or any number of other negative things. Um, you know, that wanting certainty or wanting some sense of control um, would, would, you know, put yourself through, would Mm. you, would put force upon yourself. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and I would also assume that there's some level of, you know, you, with that kind of openness, I think a lot of people could see how it could devolve into some sort of like anachoristic state. Um, but we live in a civil society where it's not like, well, we're all going to die. So what the hell's the point? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, almost like this state of nihilism. Um, so how do you, how do you harness it in, in a proper sense where, and I guess I want to kind of rein this back into relationships. How do you take that sort of existential, look at 
the uncertainty and and put it into your relationship by being aware by by appreciating by really you know being present um not taking things for granted um you know the ultimate uncertainty is you don't know when you're going to die so if you can embrace that and truly enjoy appreciate um your life your mate then you're going to have probably a very different kind of relationship than what happens to most couples, which is taking each other for granted and just, you know, figuring, you know, the relationship will be here, the relationship will be here. It's almost like being a New Yorker and never going to see the Statue of Liberty mm-hmm. because you figure, well, I live in New York, so of course I'm going to get to see the Statue of Liberty, but ne- you never get there. Yeah. <laughs> which which happens to a lot of us. Sure. I I lived in uh, San Francisco for a while, and it was only when somebody visited that I w- actually did, you know, the Fisherman's Wharf or right. the Golden Gate Bridge or that kind of stuff. And uh, it's funny because that's where my wife and I met. And whenever we do go back to San Francisco, we now make a point of doing some touristy thing because we never did it while we actually lived there. Right. Right. Um, okay. So then... What if you handle uncertainty well, but your spouse doesn't? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, You know, I talked about feeding off of each other at the beginning, but this is just the opposite where, you know, one can actually do this and the other was just struggles with it. Um, So is there any game plan for that? Should one person perhaps focus on the uncertainty stuff if they handle it better and the other one just, you know, focus on something else? Well, you know, first of all, it's it, it's going to be really uncomfortable for the person who isn't anxious because generally the person who is anxious is going to obsess and ruminate and bring something up over and over and over again. And by the way, I'd like to say that a lot of that kind of thinking and concern is possibly biologically based. We know that there are some people who really can't help themselves. Um, there are many, for any one of the, the diagnoses, there are many different possible explanations. And one of them, uh, for any of the diagnoses, is uh, a biological explanation. And we know that there are some people whose brains um, may have different hormones or may not have a, a, a cutoff loop. In other words, once they start getting anxious, they can't stop it. It just continues on and on and on. And so once they start worrying, they can't seem to shut it off. Um, so I, I do want to explain that people who are suffering from anxiety are really very uncomfortable themselves. It's not like something that they're enjoying. Sure. They are really feeling the discomfort of their anxiety just as much as the person who may be living with them um, and getting annoyed and upset. But that having been said, um, you know, it, it would obviously be helpful if the mate who is not anxious uh, validates the concern, but then tries to use some techniques where they say, okay, you know, we can talk about this, but you know, we have to stop this after five minutes or 10 minutes because to go on and on and on is only going to lead to going on and on and on. Mm -hmm. So there are certain tools that as the mate you can offer up so that 
there are some boundaries on it. Um, certainly, it can be suggested, you know, with the understanding, I know that this is difficult for you. I know that this is uncomfortable for you. You know, you might want to consider speaking to a professional about learning some techniques, um, perhaps even getting, you know, some medical help for it, you know, so vis-a-vis um, -vis some medication. So um, merely saying to them, stop it or don't do this um, or it's enough already isn't going to work mm. um, because they're not doing it purposely. Sure. Um, so I think that, you know, understanding that on the part of the non-anxious uh, mate is, is going to be very helpful. Um, so the first start, I'm sorry so, to interrupt. So the first part of the game plan is to understand that the anxious party may not have full control over that anxiety and um, it might even warrant professional help. Yes. Got it. Yes. Okay. And then, you know, I think that, you know, if the person comes and, and you know, but this happened and that happened, it makes me work. You can listen for a few minutes and validate it and then say, okay, but it's enough. We're not going to, and, and I would even say that you say to your partner, you know, here's what we're going to do. I'm willing to, you know, listen to you and talk to you, but I'm not willing to listen for, you know, more than five, 10 minutes, because when you do that, you tend to spiral down and that's not good for you. It's not good for me. It's not good for us. So I want you to know that after five minutes, I'm going to tell you that, you know, it's enough. I, I think that you need to do that explanation because to just do it is going to feel um, as if you're not caring. Okay. So, you, so you're verbally kind of setting a limit mm -hmm. on the, on the, uh, the, the, I don't know, the conversation of the anxiety, like you can't, you're not going to let them just kind of go on and on. No, no, because yeah. that is only going to, it's really feeding the anxiety. So it feeds itself. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, you can, you can validate it, but then you can show the reality also. Mm -hmm. Um, if you see that your mate is in fact taking in too much information, uh, you can suggest, you know, that, um, there be a limitation to how yeah. much they take in. Distraction is good. Yeah. Uh, you know, just like a, a child who just keeps wanting the same thing over and over again, if you distract them, then they'll shift. So you might want to try, you know, shifting uh, their attention. I'm actually, I'm, I, I want to talk just briefly about the consumption that, that you keep bringing up because I do feel, and I, we've talked about this in the past, that this nonstop 24 hours, every single second, real-time onslaught of information mm -hmm. is something new, I would argue, to the way that humans live. Like mm -hmm. We have never had access to this kind of information and this kind of speed in human history. And I think that's it sounds hyperbolic, but it's really not like we know when something happens in, in London, like as it's going on, we can right. see it happening on our phones mm -hmm. wherever we are. Right. Like we could be at the grocery store and we know that information and we right. could pull up a live feed of it. And that's. That's that's bonkers, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and so I do think it's like super interesting how 
you can get really sucked into the vortex of information and mm-hmm. and you have I think people have a responsibility to kind of create an environment for themselves where they're cognizant of the information that they are absorbing and taking in. Uh, you know, there's a people talk about it being a media diet. Like what kind of a media diet are you feeding yourself? Mm-hmm. And there are people that are, you know, policy wonks. There are people who are tech nerds. There are people who are just like angry at the system. There are so many different things. In today's media world, you can really just suck in the little sliver that is, to your point, feeding that anxiety of whatever it may be. Um, And I just think we really need to be aware of the environment that we put ourselves in and the media diet that we're feeding ourselves and like, are they good calories? Are they good mm-hmm. media calories mm-hmm. that we're getting? And if not, like you can do something about it. Um, I'm going to bring up, this is totally off topic, but no, not completely, but this gets into the environment aspect. And I was just thinking about this. I, I, I just sent out my editor's note uh, yesterday for the, uh, this, you know, we pre-record these things. Um, but it, I, in my editor's note, I talk about um, I bought some smart light bulbs for my home mm-hmm. and I've had them for, a, I don't know, probably like two months now, maybe three months. And the thing about it is how quickly we begin to take things for granted and mm-hmm. how fast um, like the lifestyle that I live has changed. And so um, I, I, I just reflected on this on my editor's note that for the longest time, tens of thousands of years, uh, humans, their entire level of productivity took place from sunrise to sunset. Because mm-hmm. when the sun went down, it got black. It mm-hmm. just got picked back and you could not see anything. Right. Then we started lighting candles and we, we found fire, right? <laughs> yeah, we, yeah. we found fire and we started lighting candles and then we started burning um, whale oil. And then at the late 1800s, we got the electric light bulb and we then started, you know, it helped propel the Industrial Revolution because we could now stay up, keep the lights on in the factory 24 right. hours a day. The interesting thing that's happening now is we don't think about how fortunate we are to keep the lights on, to, to mm-hmm. be productive. Now, everybody works two, three, not everybody, but a good portion of our society now has their side hustle, as they say. They have their two, three jobs. And keeping the lights on is just taken for granted. You know, you don't think about, you know, when it's nine o'clock at night and you're still, you know, in front of the computer or at your secondary job or whatever that wow, feel so fortunate I can be productive at nine o'clock at night. It's just something you take advantage of. And so to tie this back into my smart bulbs, so I haven't turned on a light in months. Like Mm -hmm. I just don't turn them on. They just automatically, I've, you know, I kind of did some tweaking, but they come on in the morning for me. Mm -hmm. They change, they come on again in the evening when the sun starts to set. They Mm -hmm. dim down as the sun starts to go down. And, you know, as I start getting closer to bedtime, and I will t- turn them off. That's the only thing that I do is I physically turn them off because that time changes. And technically, I could automate that as well. Mm-hmm. Now, the interesting thing, and this is where I'm going to tie this all back together. 
The interesting thing is, so I don't think of lights anymore as this tool that enables productivity. I now manipulate my lights for how they make me feel. Mm -hmm. And so I dim them at the end of night to relax me. I make Mm -hmm. them cooler when I'm, you know, if I'm watching a movie about space, I can turn them blue to give me that like atmospheric environment, right? Uh There are things that I do now and I use my lights to help improve my mood. And it's Uh not about just keeping the lights on so I could see that the utility of the light has now shifted into this more abstract um, reality for me. And I don't see myself ever going back, by the way, like this, uh-huh, uh-huh. now that I've lived this life, like it's really hard and I'm, I'm not trying to be promotional about the lights themselves, but I think sometimes we just accept the world that's coming at us and we don't stop and think about what does that mean for us? Mm-hmm. And particularly when we're talking about like the media diet, like it's, you know, just 10 years ago, like literally this is the 10 year anniversary. The iPhone came out in 2007. We are 10 years of the iPhone. Mm-hmm. The world is different. Period. End of story. Like it just is. And when you think about the fact that 10 years ago, there was no Facebook, there was no Twitter, there was no Snapchat, there was no Instagram. Like it's bonkers. Right, right. It's totally bonkers. Right. So we've just become accustomed to living with all this and it is hard to turn it off. Um, And that's what I'm saying. I guess I'm just trying to get at like, and we need to, and I love all these things, but we need to think about what it's doing to us and not mm -hmm. just what it's doing to us. But if we are going to continue to consume this stuff, what is it that we are consuming? Well, basically what you're saying, Steve, is that we, you know, go into our daily life and we get into these autopilot modes and we are not aware and we just live them day in and day out. And basically, we've got to be more present, more aware, notice what reactions we're having and what the consequences are. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it's it, it's not any different. You keep talking about media diet. It's not any different than watching what you eat and seeing how you feel afterwards and then realizing, you know what, I don't want to feel this way. Exactly. So I'm, I'm going to leave certain things out of my diet. But people don't, right? Like, I guess that's the thing. We know that we know that the junk food makes us feel bad, but then we go right back to it because it's so tasty. So how do we how do we break that cycle when it comes to things that make us anxious? I guess that's going to depend on the person and how how much you want to make a change. I mean, you know, I made major changes in the way I eat because I really got tired of the way I felt and the way I looked. You know, um, it just depends on each person um, looking at their behavior and what the consequences are and making a decision about whether you want to change. That's true of, you know, somebody decides to go into therapy. When they go into therapy, that's one decision. And then the other decision is, are you going to really work the therapy? Mm. Yeah, we've talked about that in the past. Like, you have to want to change. You can't. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, Is there anything else you wanted to add to this? No. No, not really. Not okay. really. I think it's um, I think it's an important topic that we look at. But, you know, what it all boils down to, as it does in so many things, is which I think is what we've been saying the last few minutes, is looking at who you are, what the effects are on you, on your mate, on your family, and uh, accepting responsibility for your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
All right. Well, I, you know, I, I'm, I realize that we're not solving the world's problems here, but I hope for those who may be feeling a little bit uncertain or may have felt uncertain in the recent past or will in the future that this has offered some some guiding light for you um, to help you feel better if you got some of the new smart lights. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, this was fantastic information. Thank you so much, Karen. Thank you, Steve. Uh, before we go, I want to remind everyone that you have been listening to Dr. Karen Sherman, who is a practicing psychologist in relationship and lifestyle issues for 30 years. Karen is the author of Mindfulness and the Art of Choice, Transform Your Life. Karen is the co-author of Marriage Magic, Find It, Keep It, and Make It Last. You can find information about Karen and her books and her practice at her website, drkarensherman.com. We have links to this stuff up on our site, hitchedmag.com, including all the past archives of the podcast, as well as a lot of other resources, including thousands of articles. You can sign up for our newsletter. You can join our wine club. Uh, We got tons and tons of stuff for you to hopefully help make your marriage more certain in these uncertain times. So with that, one last time, thank you so much, Karen. Thank you, Steve. All right. That's going to do it. Take care, everybody. Bye.